Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. I'm Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Davro. Kev, what's good, my guy? Happy sa- happy Sunday, I should say. Oh, yeah. Uh, not really much of a happy of anything today, but, you know, we're working through it. Helped one of my good friends move into his brand new home with his wife and his daughter. So, did my good deed for the day. Ended up getting a little banged up. Neck's a little sore. Back's killing me. But, you know, we're here. And, you know, you try to find positives in the day, but the Colts found ways to just absolutely... Uh, pretty much crush all my hopes and dreams to kind of sum it up shortly. So, you know, congratulations on your win. You know, every time we play each other, we're gentlemen about it, uh, unless one of us talks shit first. And in this case, we predicted my team to fall short, and that they did. But we have plenty of football to talk about today, so let's kind of just go right into the agenda. So, as we already talked about, the Colts lose to the Patriots in an embarrassing fashion, 26-3. to uh, Frank Reich's job has been significantly in question all season long, and in my opinion, for years in the past and years to come so uh, we'll talk a little bit about his job and, and you know what him being the head coach of this team has done we'll f- slide right into the Rams and Bucks game as Kyle and I had predicted previously it was a low scoring game it was kind of a sloppy game it wasn't exactly the most entertaining game but the Bucks pull it off just like we said they would so here we are the Bucks are four and five the Falcons are four and five and suddenly the Bucks are back in first place as they own the tiebreaker over Atlanta so Brady finds another way to get in first place even while under 500. It's just so weird to say that he's in first place knowing that, that their division record is ass. That division is a tire fire. It's a dumpster so fire. It's, it's really weird. Uh, another division that is actually surprising, but in a good way, the AFC East, the number one team, Buffalo Bills, they fall short to the New York Jets. Uh, they lose pretty much at the last second as the uh, a play is broken up by Josh. Well, no, excuse me, broken up by Sauce Gardner that was in target for Gabriel Davis, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that was on that fourth was early, down. That was earlier. In the game. Well, yeah, because there was a. I mean, Josh. It was like it was 50, a heave. It was like fourth and twenty one or something yeah, like that. He, and it he ended threw like game. 50, 60 yards. I mean, it was a heave. Yeah, so it was like a last ditch effort. The Jets hold on and they improve to six and three. Buffalo stays falls to six and two, and we're sitting here. We're looking at three teams. With six wins in the AFC East, and the the Patriots division are, is now up for grabs. It's no longer Buffalo by a mile. And all the teams in that division are over five hundred since the Patriots just won today, and they're yeah, five so, and four. Yeah, yeah so it's so, uh, it's competitive. Woo. It's competitive. It's definitely going to be it's going to be interesting. Go down the stretch. Uh, our last two segments that we're going to talk about in the NFL are going to, of course, be the Seahawks and Cardinals, as Kyle and I once again predicted. That boy Gino came through. Cardinals fall short. Seahawks improved to six and three. Another surprise that nobody saw coming. 
Cliff Kingsbury just falls another game that they potentially had an opportunity to win, and his job continues to be in jeopardy. Moving into the Packers game, don't even get me started with this one. The Lions pull the upset and get their second win of the season as the Packers lose their fifth game in a row. Yeah, they're three. What are we doing right now? Yeah, their season is, bro. Their season is over. It's over. The Vikings are seven and one. Like, there's no way they're going to come back in that division. The Vikings pretty much are going to win that division probably by the end of the month. We're also hearing rumblings that people are saying play Jordan Love. Let's before we even get into any segment, that's not going to fix a damn thing. You're talking about a back-to-back MVP. It's not because he's not putting in the effort. You see on a lot of these problems, and again, we'll get into a full analysis in a second, it's miscommunication week in and week out. Drop passes, fumbles, turnovers. It's like he can't catch a break in reference to Aaron Rodgers. So again, we'll talk about that in a little bit later. Uh, But again, Jordan Love is not the answer. If Aaron Rodgers can't do it, you sure as shit can't trust your backup quarterback that has no meaningful playing time over the course of the last three seasons. Um, and then to kind of round it out, of course, we'll mention the Titans and the Chiefs game that is currently going on there at halftime. The Titans are up 14 to 9, surprisingly to Kyle and I. Uh, again, just something that we did not expect. Derrick Henry is eight yards short of 100 yards before the half. So, or excuse me, at the half. And then, of course, we will mention the MLB season has come to a close. The Houston Nationals have won the World Series. Blah, 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 blah. And anyway, now we will go into the baseball offseason. So we'll talk about uh, that a little bit later towards the end. But, Kyle, that was a little I got to give you kudos. Point. I, I I want to talk about it. Uh, I got to give you your kudos. Let's just get right into the Colts and the Patriots game. The Colts lost. The Patriots embarrassed us. And it sucks to say out loud, but it's not like I didn't see it coming. So I will. the floor is yours. The brand, the bragging rights and the, you know, kudos, whatever. Well, first of all, before we actually dive into the actual segment itself, are you going to be all right? You'll be all right with this one? I, I, I know you have a lot okay. in the chamber with this one, bro. Like I'm going to do my best to keep myself composed because as you guys already know for regular listeners, it's late and I can't give my full emotion, but I will do my best. Okay. All right. I just wanted to preface that. I just, I needed to get that out before we dive into this because Kev, like, I don't think there's really any other way to say this. The, the Colts had probably one of the most abysmal performances I've ever seen the entire season. Like it was, it was literally a domination by the Patriots. So, yeah, let's just dive straight into the game. Uh, the, the Patriots soundly defeat the Indianapolis Colts, winning by the score of 26-3. to And even though that the Patriots scored in the mid-20s, largely this was a defensive effort from the Patriots that pretty much carried them to this win. The offense was, I would say, inconsistent at times just because the Colts' defense was pretty solid throughout the course of the game. But that Patriots' defense was hellacious they had pressure on sam ellinger the entire day the colts could not run the ball effectively in any way whatsoever and not only that the colts allow nine sacks which kev tell me if i'm wrong here that's probably a season high in sacks allowed compared to any yeah, game throughout i think, the I think matt got sacked seven times in one game so yeah so th- this was pretty much a as bad of a performance that you could see it from the Colts perspective with the Patriots. They do bump up to a five and four record. Uh, they get over a 500 record and do actually remain competitive in the AFC East after this win. But really the focus I want to put to Kev here is the Indianapolis Colts 
and how they're going to proceed forward with Frank Reich at the helm. And I know that Kev's had a lot of things to say about Frank Reich and his coaching duties with the Colts over the years. But I mean, after this type of performance, this is definitely disheartening to say the least after essentially getting spanked by three plus possessions. So Kev, to kick this one to you, what are your overall thoughts of the Colts essentially just getting dominated by the Patriots in week nine? And how do you think this affects Frank Reich's status moving forward? Well, I'm going to start this with, I told you so. I'm going to start this with, I've been saying this for three years, maybe even four. I'm going to preview this with firing Marcus Brady was not the answer. Firing our offensive coordinator that didn't even call the plays made no sense. The fact that our offensive line coach was not fired beyond me. The fact that Jim Ursay refuses to comment after our third straight loss, absolutely comical. And the fact that every single Colts beat writer, sports reporter, and radio broadcaster has interviewed Frank a multitude of times this year for some quotes that I'd like you guys to hear. So, Nate Adkins, a Colts beat reporter, asked Frank Reich whether or not they would consider another quarterback change. He said he needs time to decide on that one. I'm going to pin that, and we're going to come back to that, because this list is pretty endless, right? So then, you go through the rest of the quotes. I certainly did not anticipate today. I really did not. Guess who said that? Frank Reich. Don't know how you don't anticipate a team when you're scheming for them all week. But again, that's just the, the, the cream of the crop here, right? So it just continues to persist. So basically, another reporter noted that Indy has been outscored 111-42 to 42 in the first half of this season. They haven't led in a game since Christmas of last year. It is November 6th of 2022. We're almost a full year into not being able to lead a game. So we'll just continue to go with that, right? So we'll just kind of carry on here as I scroll through. Frank asked by Angela Moraine, another Colts writer. Frank is not going to, excuse me, she asks about the reasons why we lost. And his response, I'm not going to put this on the O-line. I just have to believe that we'll get it figured out. Now, the Colts, the Colts, the quotes kind of persist and persist and persist. So I'm just going to, like I said, pin it there. And we're going to elaborate on the first one. A quarterback change isn't going to save anything. This offensive line is absolute dog shit. Highest paid offensive line. We have Quentin Nelson, a $20 million left tackle, excuse me, left guard. Just getting absolutely embarrassed and just getting beat on one-on-one coverage to the point where he ends up on his knees and the pass rush gets to Sam. He was sacked nine times today. So just let that simmer, right? So when you go and you ask why we lost, I don't know. It sure as shit wasn't because of the defense because in the fourth quarter, it was 16-3 to at one point, and that's only because the defense was able to keep us in the game as long as they did. As time progressed, the Patriots' defense was able to continue to accumulate sacks. They forced a pick six, yada, yada, yada. We all know how the story goes from there, right? Then you go and you prevy, I did not anticipate today. Now, I've been saying that Frank Reich is one of the most ill-prepared, ill-advised, worst head coaches in the league. People laughed at me. People told me that it's because of the quarterback changes. People told me it's because of the owner, the personnel, the fact that the Colts aren't ready to do it. I've heard everything. Kyle and I have gotten into discussion and debates as friends about Frank Reich. I'm being too harsh. I'm being too cruel. Kev, you're not being fair. You have to look at it from a bigger picture. It's not easy to coach, right? All these different things. I will now say I told you so to my partner and to the world because I've been saying this for years. People say, 
You got to be understanding. You got to be open-minded. It's not all on the coach. Frank isn't out there playing. He can't make these things happen. Wrong. When you're a head coach, you are the leader of a team. You're the leader of 53 men on this organization, on this roster. And this is what you're putting out week in and week, excuse me, week in and week out. We get embarrassed by Jacksonville, left on a donut. We go into Foxborough, we score three points. You go and throw your second-year quarterback into a situation in which you're not prepared for. Because that's essentially what he said. I didn't anticipate this. How do you not anticipate this? Now I'm starting to wake up because I'm starting to be able to express my emotions. Because if I, because I was moving today, I wasn't able to really watch the game at all. I watched one defensive and one offensive series in the fourth quarter. And that's all I got to see. Didn't want to see anymore. Thank God I didn't watch anything else. Um, we have progressively gotten worse as the season has gone on and Kyle I just want to pan the camera to you really quick because I want you to read the numbers because my phone is obviously the reason we're recording I want you to read that tweet that I had sent you and read the statistics of how bad our offense is if you could do me that favor please okay so I have the tweet right here so the Colts offense entry week nine so offensively they're dead last Essentially, that's just their offensive rating compared to the rest of the league. They're in last place. Uh, fumbles. They have 21 fumbles this year. Opening drive points, zero. First quarter points, they have 10 points this year. I believe that's second to last place. Oh, and by the way, for the opening drive points and the fumbles, the Colts are in last place in those two specific categories. Uh, points per game, they are third worst in the NFL with 16 points per game. Uh Sacks allowed, they are at 16. Uh, 16 point, oh, wait, wait, I take that back. Uh, 26 sacks as a unit. Uh, they are tied for 30th. I believe that's third worst in the NFL. Yep. Uh, they have nine interceptions as a team, which is tied for 30th, which is the third worst in the league. A, looking at their rush yards per game, mind you, Last year, they had Jonathan Taylor, who went absolutely buck wild last year. This year, they're averaging 87.8 yards per game, which is fourth worst in the NFL. And then on a fourth down conversion percentage, they are two of seven, which is essentially fourth place, uh, fourth to last place, I should say, in that regard. And not only that, Kev, when it came to third down conversions against the Patriots today, they didn't convert a single one. So that's not going to help out their third down conversion rate either. I'll kick it back to you. No, thank you. I really appreciate that. So let me just close this out with saying you're not prepared. You don't know your personnel. You don't know how to play call. You fire the wrong person. And we're 3-5-1 and one with a top 10 overall defense. We're wasting the careers of Darius Leonard, Julian Blackman, Jonathan Taylor, so many other good young pieces. Zaire Franklin is coming out this year and showing that he is a, a starting linebacker on any team outside of Bobby Okariki again, or, or Okarake, excuse me for my, mis, my mispronunciation. And I'm, I'm fed up. I'm over it. I'm done with it. I have told Kyle this personally, and I've said it jokingly a multitude of times as the games have progressed. My fandom is on the line. I have supported this team for as long as I can remember. I am 28 years old, going on 29 in July. I have supported the Colts basically since early middle school. Maybe even like almost after kindergarten. Like I've always been a Colts fan for as long as I can remember. It's always been the horseshoe. Wins, losses, I've been there for the Curtis Painter years. I was there for the Andrew Luck being injured years. I was there for Andrew getting beat up. I was there for the intermediate years with Matt Hasselbeck and freaking uh, we had... Oh my God, we had Josh Freeman at one point and Josh Johnson and so many just 
carousel quarterbacks, I've had enough. It's not the fact that the team is bad. It's not the fact that we're struggling. It's not the fact that we can't score. It's the fact that this team is run by Jim Irsay and the fact that we have allowed this man to coach this team for as long as he has. That's Frank Reich. His job is the hottest of the hots of the hottest of hot seats. I know what I just said, and I mean that to the T. If Frank Reich is not fired before the end of this season, the Colts will have lost probably one of their most dedicated fans in their history. And that's a big task, but I know damn near everything about this organization. And I followed it, and I'm almost getting emotional because I don't want to leave, but I can't support a team that will not see the biggest problem in the room and not get rid of it. It's like having an infestation in your house because you have food on the floor and you won't clean up the food. So the bugs are just going to keep coming in. That's the closest analogy. Or that your house stinks because your dog took a shit in your living room and you're not willing to clean up that shit. That is the epitome of the Colts right now. Frank Reich is literally one of the biggest problems. The offensive line is playing horrible. The offense is playing horrible. You know, the quarterback situation is not the greatest, but again... Between play calling, inconsistencies, and leadership, I've had enough. He has to go. I don't give a shit if you let our special teams coach and, and Bubba, I forget his last name, but if you if he used to be the Patriots special teams coordinator as well as a, a Patriots player. I believe that, that, that somebody needs to take the, the keys from him. He needs to be kicked out of the facility, banned. He needs to be ran out of Indianapolis. I'm, I'm not saying his family's bad or anything. I'm, I'm being drastic and dramatic, of course, but this team is not this bad. They're being led by a moron. He needs to go. Kyle, I've had enough. I'm, the countdown begins now. Week 10 starts after tomorrow's game. If Frank is not fired before week 17, I will be in the free agent market for a sports team. I'm done. Kev, so I'll kind of look at it from this perspective because I watched the game. I watched the entirety of the game. And... Look, I mean, I've been open to the idea of letting things play out with Frank, seeing how the season progresses, and then kind of making a judgment call after a certain time has passed and whether or not that he should stay or go. Kev, we're basically 10 weeks into the season. He's got to go. That was an atrocious performance from the coaching staff today, and he leads that coaching staff. To me, I'm with you. He's got to go. And it's not going to be this week. It's probably going to be a couple weeks down the line, maybe a month, month and a half down the line. But the way that this team looks with the Colts, this defense, they had a camera shot of the defensive personnel on the sideline at the end of the game against the Patriots, and they looked absolutely broken. They looked disheartened. They looked like they just got ran over by a truck just because they know, they honestly know the biggest issues with this team right now. And that is, it's the offense. The offensive line is just, an, it's just a tire fire, Kev. And there's really no other way to say it. Because when you give up nine sacks in a game, your quarterback is getting absolutely killed in the pocket. And I don't know how you're going to be able to stabilize that moving forward. Because the Patriots have what I would consider a pretty solid defense, all things considered. And, they looked like pretty much like a top five defense of all time with the way that they were just able to bring pass rushes the entire game. Matt Judon had what I would consider a career day. Josh Uche, same thing. 
when you're able to get nine sacks and bring effective pass rushes as they were, there is no way that the Colts were going to win that game in any way, shape, or form. The fact that they got three points is kind of a miracle. And the only reason why they got the three points was that they were able to get a fumble off of Jacoby Myers, which led to a field goal. That was all they were able to get out of it. But looking at this game, I can't even really evaluate Sam Ellinger at this point because he had no time to work in the pocket. And, you know, granted, I know he had the one interception that essentially was the symbolic closing to the game because the Patriots, I think Jonathan Jones ended up getting that pick six and returning it for a touchdown. But, I, I mean, at that point, the game was so well out of hand just because the Patriots' defense had dominated the Colts in every way imaginable. I don't know what else you're left to do at this point. And, Kev, I know that they got shut out by the Jaguars earlier in the season, and I know that was probably a pretty embarrassing performance. But, Kev, I'm going to be honest with you on this one. I think this one might have even been worse. They were never even competitive. Kev, they were 0-14 on third downs. I've never seen a third down efficiency that bad before. And there were multiple times where they were dealing with third and one, third and two, third and three. These are manageable third downs. And they were just getting destroyed on the line of scrimmage. I mean, it was an absolute nightmare from the Colts' perspective. And the way that I see it, Kev, I think if I remember correctly, I think offensively, I think they had 120 total yards. And some of those were garbage time yards at the end of the game. This was one of the just, not only, I, w- I wouldn't say the most disheartening performances from the Colts that I've seen in this rivalry between the Patriots and them. This is one of the worst performances I've ever seen from the Colts, period. And I'm not going to really put a lot of blame on Sam Ellinger here because, to be honest with you, he was facing an impossible challenge to begin with. His offensive line is getting bullied left and right. And that's despite the fact that they're the highest paid offensive line in the entire NFL. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. They should cut that whole offensive line after that game. You give up nine sacks in that game. I'm like, I might as well just cut the guys. Because I could pr- pr- probably find five offensive tackles off the street that could at least play a little bit better and play a little bit more inspired football. And as far as I see it with the defense, the defense was the only thing that kept that team in it. Because... The Colts defense, you know, you got to really look at their effort. I mean, they came to play. They kept the Colts in it. And just the offense did no favors for them whatsoever. So no matter what sort of stops that the Colts were getting defensively, it wouldn't matter because the offense was just mired in inconsistency, ineptitude, incompetence. You could throw any sort of adjective on it that you want to. But... The Colts are an absolute disgrace at this point. And the way that I see it, they might be the worst team in the NFL right now. I know that some teams have some worse records out there, like the Lions. I know the Texans are probably one of those teams that are basically at the gutter of the NFL. But I'm looking at that performance that the Colts had in Week 9. It was an absolute embarrassment. And I'll pretty much just leave it at that. But just to kind of round this thing full circle... Frank Reich needs to go. He is not helping the situation here. I understand there's some personnel issues that are at play here, but I think this is just coming down to effort. I don't see the team performing offensively with really any sort of passion or heart. And when the offense really, to me, is not showing any sort of heart, 
at that point, there's got to be a change. And I think with them throwing Marcus Brady under the bus and essentially using him as a scapegoat, I think was extremely disrespectful. And I, I'm just on the mindset that, you know, within the next couple of weeks, if the, the Colts continue this downward trend, Frank's got to go. And not only that, there may need to be some, there may need to be some wholesale changes when it comes to this front office as well. Because as far as I see it, from an offensive perspective, this team is just, I mean, they're not even equipped to be able to really effectively move the ball up and down the field. And I, I mean, I, I think I've gone long enough at this point, but yeah, the Colts had one of the most embarrassing performances I've ever seen. And I'm going to just leave it at that. The best part about this is, right, the remainder of our schedule, it's only going to get worse. The Raiders, I know people shit talk them. They played tough. They're not an easy game. Josh McDaniels isn't stupid. And obviously, Derek Carr, Devontae Adams, we all know that list, right? Right after that, we have the undefeated Philadelphia Eagles. Mm-hmm. I can go fuck myself, right? Yeah, then we have Pittsburgh, which is a potential winnable game. But again, I think TJ Watt will be back by that time. So that might be worse for us. Then you got Dallas, one of the best teams in the NFC. Oh. Then you have Minnesota, who's the second best team in the NFC. Then you got the Chargers in that high-powered offense that Justin Herbert still leads somehow, some way. Then you got the Giants, another tough team in the NFC. And then you close out with the Texans. Tell me where we have a break. I don't think we have a break until potentially Pittsburgh. But again, because TJ will be back by that guy. I, Two games. Steelers and Texans. That's it. Every other we game. Are, we, we, we are a potential top five lottery team in terms of top five picks in the draft. Um, and it's just going to continue. The fire sale is going to include, I can predict already, Quentin Nelson may get shopped. I think that Shaquille Leonard might get shopped. I think that our safeties and secondary, like like Kenny Moore, they're probably going to get shopped for picks. If Chris Ballard is still on this roster, I have no idea. I think Jim Mercy needs a clean slate, clean house. Everybody's got to go. We need to reevaluate, and the tank years have begun. Excuse me, I hate the word tank. The rebuild years have begun, and we will start to now accumulate the pieces necessary to be competitive in the AFC. Our window is closed. The team is not the same. Jim Mercy needs to sell the team. I don't give a shit if you sell it to a homeless guy, because at that point, I feel like maybe that person will be able to give me something. So here's your thumbs up, Jim, because you like to tweet when, 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 it's, when it's least important to you. You had to tweet that Marcus Brady was relieved of all his duties. Good luck to you out there in the future. Yeah, you, you can kiss my ass because we got another video of you leaving on your mighty golf cart, not speaking to a single goddamn reporter. But the second we win, you're the first person to run up and t- talk some shit. The entire organization's front office and leadership is done. I'm over it. Let's move on to the next topic. Yeah, because... Kev, even I went in on that one. That was that was just a disgraceful performance. And I, when I don't see heart, when they're just getting bullied, yeah, something's got to change. And, it, so, and, it's not, it, and honestly, I kind of let this part out. No matter what sort of coaching change comes about, whether it's in this season or the off season, I don't know if it's going to help. Nope, it's not because it's a per- it's a personnel issue. Like I said, there's going to be some some cuts, some trades. We're going to have to accumulate different things, and I use the term "we" lightly now because I'm teetering towards dipping. But it's going to be a long it's going to be a long remainder of the season for the Indianapolis Colts. Another team that's going to be long for is going to be the Rams. Defending Super Bowl champions lose today in a tough one. They lose to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers by the score of sixteen to thirteen. Tom's boy, excuse me, Kyle's boy, Tom finds a way to win. As the game closes itself out, 
Uh, Tom Brady goes for 280 yards and a touchdown, throws the ball for 58 pass attempts, which is just ridiculous that that man has to shoulder that much weight at the age of 45. So, Kyle, I'll pose this one to you. Uh, do the Bucks have a shot to make a run at a playoff berth? And what are your thoughts on this atrocious game? Well, Kev, I will say that we did actually say that this game was going to be a grind. And that's exactly what it was. This game was just a full-out trudge of a game. Like, I mean, both offenses struggled against the respective defenses. And even though that the Bucks won this game, Kev, I'm going to be honest with you. By the end of that game, bro, I just felt like nasty. It felt like I went through like three hours of just like going through mud, like just on like just crawling through like a freaking military uh, training exercise where I'm just like there's barbed wire above my head and I'm in the mud and I just got to deal with this for the next three hours. That's what it was. It was just a trudge match the entire game. Now, granted, the Bucks won. So I got to give them credit for being able to essentially win this game at the end with Brady leading a clutch drive. And that last drive was sensational. It was really like the first time I'd seen the Bucks really open up their offense the entire day. And they were able to execute and, you know, finish the drive effectively with a touchdown with about nine seconds left in the game. But up until that point, the Rams defense held them in it. Like the Rams were in that game. They led the game pretty much wire to wire, except at the end. And then maybe a field goal, like in the first quarter. So this seemed like the Rams had this game well in their hand. And then they just found a way to kind of screw it up at the end. And, I mean, when you lose a Tom Brady on a game-winning drive, it's nothing to be ashamed of. But the Rams defensively did everything that they could to be able to win that game, to only hold Tampa to 16 points. Man, you got to hold your head high after a performance like that. But, I mean, just to kind of focus on the Rams here, Kev, I think their season is over. I know we're nine weeks in. This is essentially the halfway point of the season. This offense, to say it's dysfunctional, is an understatement. They just can't get anything consistently in the run game. It doesn't matter who you have back there, whether it's Cam Akers or Henderson. These guys are maybe lucky to get two or three carries a game. And not only that, just the the lack of consistency in being able to protect Matt Stafford this year. I mean, it's been an eyesore. Stafford's getting killed back there. And the fact that he didn't turn the ball over today, I'll give him a thumbs up for that because that's what kept the Rams in the game because there weren't that many mistakes from Stafford, even despite the fact that the Bucks were bringing consistent pressure the entire day. But man, when it just comes to the Rams, this is a completely different team than last year. And I know there's been some personnel changes on the offensive line. I did not think it would be this bad. Kev, we picked this team to go to the Super Bowl this year. Now, granted, I know that was back in August, maybe early September, but this team looks awful and they lost to a Tampa team that looks no better. You, you can honestly say that the Bucks and the Rams are essentially just a mirror of each other because a lot of the issues that they have are very similar to one another. The only reason why the, the Bucks and the Rams have been somewhat viable this year is because of their defensive play. Those are the only, that's the only reason why like they're still somewhat in the discussion about possibly making the playoffs. The Bucks have a better chance just because they play in the NFC South, which is an absolute dumpster fire of a division this year. 
in the NFC West, when it comes to the Rams, they're in trouble. They're sitting at a sub-500 record. The Seahawks look like they're starting to run away with the division. We'll see what happens in the second half of the year. But I don't see any sort of viable pathway here for the Rams to get back into the groove unless they fix the offensive line. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. If Matt Stafford is able to pull this team, and I should actually rephrase that, if he's able to drag this team to the playoffs, I think this would be one of his greatest accomplishments throughout his NFL career. I mean, it's one thing to win a Super Bowl. I mean, that's a great achievement. But the way that this offense is playing right now, Kevin it hurts to watch. And like I said earlier, the Rams could have won that game. And they had opportunities to be able to extend drives to convert on third downs against that Bucks defense, and they just weren't able to do it. That second half, they were just inconsistent. I remember one play in particular, Matt Stafford was third and goal or second and goal. I forget which down it was. Had a wide open receiver in the end zone. Ends up throwing it at the guy's feet. It's an incomplete pass. And then they have to end up settling for a field goal after that. And that was despite the fact they were inside the 10-yard line against the Bucs. And there were just multiple opportunities for the Rams to extend drives. They just couldn't do it. And then they just gave Brady too many times to work with to move the Bucs into position to score a touchdown. And they did. That Rams defense held up the entire game except for basically the last two drives where they ended up giving, I believe, a field goal and then a touchdown in the uh, the last two drives against the Bucs. So the Rams defense did what they needed to do. They just fell short when they needed to at the end. But by and large, when it comes to the Rams this year, I think their season is essentially over. I don't see how the Rams are going to be able to bounce back with all these issues on the offensive line, which is leading to inconsistency in the run game. And Matt Stafford has just looked like a shell of himself this year. I'm not really putting a lot of blame on him, but this all kind of ties back to the offensive line. And that's really why this whole team has just been dysfunctional this year. And it's essentially the same reason why the Bucs have looked the way that they have. So, yeah, I'll just kind of leave it at that. The Rams are screwed as far as I see it. I mean, let's just kind of look it over from an overall perspective, right? We're looking at just statistically, the Rams didn't have the worst game in the world, right? And neither did the Buccaneers. But you look at in circle one aspect. They both can't run the football. I mean, the Rams were going for 2.8 to carry. The Bucks were going for 2.6 to carry. Matthew Stafford couldn't get anything going in terms of uh, consistency with completion. But again, like Kyle had alluded to, there were no turnovers. Matthew Stafford was also sacked four times. Tom Brady was only sacked one time. So the offensive line was able to succeed in protecting Brady. He was only hit three times. The pressures were there. You know, he obviously fell Aaron Donald and a couple of other defensive linemen. And of course, at the end of the day, when you're shifting and moving around in the pocket to make throws and you're passing it 58 times, there's going to be a point when you're like, damn, I'm, 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 I'm tired of running. And again, he's 45. So the Bucks did enough to win this game. And obviously being led in that game-winning drive for Tom Brady to go down the field in however many seconds it was, I forget the number, for them to get this win at home, it was immensely pivotal for this team to completely turn around their season potentially, especially with Atlanta losing. This could be the start of their season turning around. The Rams, we just talked about, there's no shot of them turning this around, especially because of the division that they play in. Obviously, the 49ers are still themselves, and they're getting better as the weeks progress as they continue to get healthy with the trades that they made. And then, of course, you have the Seattle Seahawks at 6-3, and three, which I will never not say this every time we talk about them, which I know we will talk about them in a few minutes, but damn, I am still in shock that they are as good as they are this year. You just... It is... 
almost impossible for the Rams to get anything going on any facet of the ball. People are saying that it's Sean McVay's fault. People are saying that it's 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 management's fault for making the deals with the devil that they did in terms of trading away their future for all the players that they acquired last year. Obviously, they go and get OBJ. They obviously go and get Von Miller. They go and they get all these other pieces, and it's just like you traded your entire future away for pieces that are not playing very well. And of course, you know, at the end of the day, Von Miller ends up leaving to co sign with Buffalo, but it is what it is at that point. That's just the nature of the business side. The Rams can't get it going, right? So I'm, I'm going to give you guys one more stat here, or should I say one more couple of numbers. So Cooper Cup did his thing with a bad ankle or a bad knee, whichever the injury was prior yeah, to was the a, game. That it was, was an ankle. It was an ankle. Okay, so it was the ankle. He goes for eight, 127 yards in a touchdown, right? Nine targets. A 69-yard 69, a 69 longest reception. The next person's Allen Robinson. Three for 24, five targets. Everybody else, garbage. Absolutely garbage. Van Jefferson, zero. Skorowick, zero. Darrell Henderson, zero. Bryce Hop- Bryson Hopkins, zero. Tyler Higby, zero. Brandon Powell, zero in terms of receptions. But they were targeted. Oh, excuse me. Brandon Powell had one reception. What are you supposed to do when all you throw to is Cooper Cup? He is the definition of a force-fed receiver. That is another problem that Matthew Stafford does not trust anybody else outside of Cooper Cup. So that's how I'm going to end it. The Bucks get a close win, like we said it would be, and the Rams just continue to falter and look worse and worse pretty much every single week. If the Bucks can find a way to use this as an anchor to catapult them back into contention or to relevancy, then so be it. It's nothing to be proud of because you have your 45-year-old quarterback throwing the ball damn near 60 times, but it's a win. So ugly or good, a win is a win. And obviously, you know, that's what matters most in this league. I, just to kind of focus on the Bucks, I just kind of want to make some small points here. I have to give them credit. Even though that Brady did throw the ball, what, 58 times? They consistently tried to feed the run game. They were trying to make an effort. It's just they just couldn't get past that front four that the Rams had. I mean, the Rams, I, dude... If there's one thing that I cannot criticize when it comes to the Rams is that their defense is just top-notch. They played top-notch today. Outside of the last couple drives in the fourth quarter, and trust me, I understand that the Rams have had many issues in the second half this year in pretty much most of their games. The differential that I've seen when it comes to the points allowed compared to how many points they've scored in the second half is just baffling. That's where the Rams are losing these games. But when you give... Tom, time and time again to be able to just get that team into position to score a touchdown. He's going to cash in on one of these eventually. It just happened to be the last drive of the game with nine seconds left. I believe he hit up. I think it was Cade Otten that he hit up on that game-winning touchdown. So, And I got to give Cade Otten a lot of respect because Cade, he's been one of Brady's go-tos at that tight end position. Now that Cameron Brate's out with this neck injury, it's actually a pretty serious one a couple of weeks ago. Brady's making a consistent, a consistent effort to get the ball to Otten. And by and large, he's done a pretty solid job under the circumstances. But, Kev, it's just, it was a grind. It was the way that we both kind of expected that game to play out. But I've never seen a team just basically fall back to a point where it is the the literal definition of dink and dunk. Kev, Brady's getting the snap. Within a second and a half, he's getting that ball out. Like I know what that is. He knows that offensive line is not going to hold up. 
And I give the guy credit. I know Tom has not looked great this year. And there have been many times where you could look back at some of the performances where he's looked shaky. The only thing that I could say about Tom in this regard, he is not compounding the issues with the Bucs offensively. He's not turning the ball over. He has 10 touchdowns to one interception. I mean, the touchdown to interception ratio is phenomenal. But he could be making things a lot worse. If this were somebody else, like I'll give you an example. I'll use Mac Jones here, one of the guys' jersey. If Mac Jones were in charge of this Bucks offense, the Bucs might win one game out of all the games that they've played because he would make the issues a lot worth uh, he'd make the issues a lot worse by putting up some risky passes some passes that can lead to turnovers at least tom is not doing that so tom could make making things a lot worse with that with that bucks offense but he's holding it steady and the fact that he was able to lead that game winning drive under the circumstances i give the guy credit the guy is dealing with a pretty daunting challenge this year with the offensive line and the construction of the personnel that they have there. And the fact that they're tied for first place and own the tiebreaker over the Falcons at a four and five record is just, it's, a, it's astonishing. They've looked awful the last month. And the fact that they are sitting in first place is nothing short of a miracle as far as I'm concerned. So maybe this win gives them a little bit of a kickstart to kind of get their shit together but Kev I think this season for the Bucks is just going to be an outright grind they're going to heavily rely on their defense to win the, these games because the offense is going to be lucky to score 20 points a game I mean they scored 16 and it felt like they went to war to get those 16 points so overall I think the Bucks are in a little bit of a better position to salvage their season and you factor in the divisional aspect they could still make the playoffs I think when it comes to the Rams, I think they're done. I think they're screwed. Because they have the same issues as the Bucs do, but they're in a much tougher division. And I don't see the Seahawks falling apart to a point where the Rams could be a competitive team in the NFC West. I'd probably give it to the 49ers. The 49ers have a much better chance uh, to make a run at where the Seahawks are at right now. But the Rams, I mean, they're gonna they're gonna play out the season. They're gonna, you know, try to get back into some sort of playoff relevancy. But I don't see it. I think they're screwed. We'll just well, two leave teams it at that. that two teams that are not in that situation because we got to move on at the end of the day. Yep, are going to be the Bills and the Jets. Now the Bills lose, despite what people believe to be a not relatively simple game, but because of the performance that Zach Wilson had the previous week and the Bills having the league's best defense, it was a favorable matchup. Not only in our opinion, but in the professional, you know, media outlets, sports analysts, and whatever have you. The Bills lose 20 to 17. The Jets move to six and three. The Bills fall to six and two. And like we've already alluded to, all four teams in the AFC East are above 500. So, Kyle, I'm going to kick this one to you. Was this an example of the Bills showing a weakness of relying on Josh Allen too much? Or is that Jets defense for real? Yeah, I got to say, I, I do think that this Jets defense is for real. Even though that they lost to the Patriots last week, which. Let's be honest. That was a bad loss to the Patriots last week. You know, Zach Wilson looked like a rookie quarterback last week when faced up against Bill Belichick. Turned the ball over three times and really put the Jets in a hole where the Jets couldn't dig themselves out of. And I got to say, I just got to give a lot of credit to the Jets as a whole to be able to bounce back from that, what I would consider 
is an embarrassing loss to a subpar team in the Patriots last week and being able to bounce back to essentially knock off Kev. Kev, would you say that the Bills were probably the best team going into week nine? Because Without I sure did. Without a doubt. Not a question. So the fact that they were able to pull that off, I, I got to give them kudos for that. And I will say, at first, it didn't look like that. The Bills got off to a pretty solid start. I mean, Josh Allen was able to bounce out of the pocket, was able to extend some plays with his feet, and was able to score a couple touchdowns early on. And then, to me, I really think where this game started to go in the favor of the Jets here was at the end of the first half when they were able to tighten the deficit to only four, to only four points. I believe at halftime, score was 14-10. to 10. And then the Jets' defense, man, they locked up in the second half. To be able to hold the Bills to three points in the second half is nothing short of astonishing. And they made life for Josh Allen uncomfortable. I mean, there were multiple times where he tried to escape and the Jets weren't having it. The Jets were able to just put him into some dicey situations where they were able to get the Bills off the field, you know, force the Bills to punt. And then the Jets just putting one step in front of another, they were able to establish some drives in that second half to get them into scoring position. And they were able to take advantage of it. I thought that that last drive that they had that set them up for the game-winning field goal, that was just excellent play calling. They were able to extend plays on third down, uh, or they were able to extend drives on that third down. Not only that, they just didn't really put the ball in harm's way where the Bills defense could turn the ball over in that late stage of the second half. And I got to give that Jets defense credit. Once the Jets were able to get the lead after the field goal to put it put them up 20 to 17, they locked them up. They locked the Bills up. They put the Bills in a situation where they had to convert a fourth and 21 to be able to extend the drive. And I I gotta give credit to those Jets uh secondary personnel because I mean Josh threw a freaking bomb towards Gabriel Davis with about I think like 30 to 45 seconds left, and they were able to knock down the pass. And we all know what Josh Allen is capable of, especially when he's throwing bombs because Stephon Diggs and Gabriel Davis have made it a point of emphasis or they've made a living of it to be able to burn secondaries deep on those passing plays. And the fact that the Jets were able to hold up pretty much 50, 60 yards downfield, got to give them credit for that. Uh, To me, this is really what I would consider a, this is a big achievement for Robert Sala. This is probably the biggest win that he's had as a coach with the Jets at this point, to be able to knock off arguably the number one team in the league and in the manner that they did it with essentially shutting down the Bills in the second half, I don't think anybody expected that going into week nine. I thought the Bills were going to run away with this game. This wasn't even a game that Kevin and I even mentioned about discussing going into our episode last week before the games had taken place this past weekend. So it was really one of the more surprising results from week nine. And you could probably say to the season in a larger extent, just because I thought the Bills were going to win this game by probably 10 plus points. But overall, this AFC East is very interesting now. You know, when you look at the standings, all those four teams in the AFC East, the Bills, the Jets, the Dolphins, the Patriots are all over 500. And the Jets are only one game behind the Bills in the loss column. And I don't think anybody expected that going into the season. I sure as hell didn't. But they've put themselves in a position halfway through the season 
where they have a legitimate chance to possibly capture first place from the Bills, which is just outright incredible at this point. So overall, a great performance from the Jets. When it comes to the Bills, they had a letdown game. The two games that they've lost this year have been divisional games where they had chances to win both of them, and they just made some mistakes that put them behind the eight ball. But overall, I still believe the Bills are the team to be in the AFC East. Not really just the AFC East, but really the AFC to a larger extent too. But they got to make some adjustments. I imagine looking at that tape is not going to be easy on Monday. So they'll have a chance to be able to bounce back in week 10. But overall, great performance from the Jets. They earned a dub. And this was a huge bounce back win after a pretty embarrassing loss to the Patriots the week before. So Kev, I'll kick it to you from here. I mean, I don't really have much to say. I mean, you hit all the critical points. One thing I will circle on is this Buffalo defense has been known all season long for their defense. This this team has been known for the defensive presence and what they've been able to do in all facets of the ball between their pass rush, their linebackers, and their secondary being ball hawks and forcing turnovers, right? That defense was absolutely exposed today. The Jets ran for 174 yards. They got everything they wanted, averaging over five yards per carry. And they got away with it. They te- they kept the ball away from Josh Allen. They make sure in, in the second half that they were able to legitimately just eat up as much clock as they could. And Zach Wilson was turnover free outside of that fumble that he had early uh, early on during that game. And you look at Josh Allen, sacked five times, two interceptions, two fumbles. They were able to recover both, but still two fumbles. He was careless with the ball. The offensive line did not look good. And I'm tired of saying this, and I tell it to Kyle every single week. Outside of Josh Allen running the ball for 86 yards, the Buffalo Bills have running backs on their roster, and they combined for 39 yards. Devin Singletary and James Cook had 24 and 15 yards apiece. On what earth do your starting and backup running backs have a combined less than half total amount of yards than your starting quarterback? This is an example of what I had alluded to in my question. The Buffalo Bills put the pressure of the entire franchise on the shoulders of Josh Allen. And most starting quarterbacks in the NFL have that pressure naturally because they're the reason why offenses score and move the ball and whatnot. But he has to throw the ball 30 to 40 times a game. He's got to run the ball for over 60 yards a game. He's got to score with his legs and with his arm. He's got to be accurate. He can't turn the ball over. He's got to escape because of the lack of offensive line consistencies throughout the season. There have been some games where he's been sacked. There's some games where he's been hit. There's some games where he's taken a beating when he didn't need to because he was trying to force plays because the team is not doing well around him. So you have to look at the coaching staff and say, this has been an issue since Josh has been in the league. They can't run the football if it's not with Josh Allen. They need to legitimately pull him into the locker room, grab him by his freaking shoulder pads and be like, dude, stop running as much as you do. Slide, like whatever you have to do, like find him internally without telling the media because this is going to get him hurt. 86 yards rushing, 205 yards in the air. Again, two touched, two interceptions. Josh Allen's got to do better. The Buffalo Bills have got to do do better for Josh. And the offensive coordinators just got it. They, they, they have to change their mindset. I know that Brian Dable was there last year, and he's now the head coach of the Giants. But this has still been an, an inconsistency even when Dable was there. You have to be able to rely, rely on your running backs. You have to be able to create running lanes for your running backs. They only had 12 attempts between the running backs together. Josh Allen had nine by himself. This needs to stop. The defense will bounce back. They had one bad performance, and it wasn't even that bad because they only gave up 20 points. But when you look at it from a statistical analytic side, 
174 yards on the ground is bad. That is a piss-poor performance. Zach Wilson didn't have the greatest game in the world, but he doesn't have to because we all know that the Jets rely on the formula of running the football and playing good defense. When you sack the quarterback, you force turnovers, and you run the ball as effectively as you did, especially because you're able to keep it away from Josh, that's how you win. Kudos to Robert Sala and how he's been able to change the culture in New York. Nobody saw the start to the season that they've had thus far, especially being the record that they are. But the Jets look to be very serious. Sauce Gardner looks to be very serious. And I think, potentially, the Jets really have a good shot at chasing a wild card spot this year. Yeah, it's just it's kind of astonishing that they're only one game in the loss column away from tying the Bills, which is just insane because... Kev, I think if if I remember it correctly, we had the Bills essentially as like a lock to go to the Super Bowl this year. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that we're nine weeks in, and not only the Jets, but you got teams like the Dolphins and the Patriots that are not that far behind the Bills, to, you know, just from a record perspective. This division is a lot more competitive than I think you and I had originally anticipated. You know, it's just, I think it kind of goes without saying that the Bills are still probably a little bit ahead of the rest of the competition. But these are the teams that are going to be nipping at their heels the next couple of weeks. So the Bills got to be on their A game here. You know, and their two losses have been divisional games. You know, who would have thought the monitor. that? Who would have thought monitor. Who would have thought that? So, you know, the, the Dolphins one, the Dolphins one I could kind of overlook a little bit because, Kev, you remember that game? It was like a hundred degrees. Injuries guys were, were flying. Yeah. Guys were guys were cramping up. It wasn't just the, the Bills were cramping up. I mean, there were Dolphin players that were on the sideline, and they were just. I mean, they were struggling. It seemed like by the end of the game, just both teams were just happy that the game was over, so they could get into the locker room because it was just that freaking hot out, and guys were so dehydrated. But with this one, man, you you can't drop this one, especially after a bad loss with the Jets the week before. Hey, Kev, this is kind of funny. I mean, just to kind of just to kind of troll for a second. I mean, I, I have to say this just because I'm wearing the jersey. The Patriots beat the Jets last week, yet the Jets come back and beat the Bills. AKA the Patriots are a better team than the Bills. That's enough. I gotta say it. Just, it's just enough. a troll. I gotta You're say it's ridiculous. I gotta say it's just a troll. But no, like just to be serious. But no, it's it's definitely a more competitive division than I originally anticipated. We'll see how the rest of the season plays out because there's still another half of the season to go. But overall, what a game for the Jets. This is a huge bounce back win. And like I said, this is really kind of a crowning achievement for Robert Sala in his early coaching tenure with the Jets. So to be able to beat the, the Bills in the manner that they did, got to give him. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Credit for that. But with that said, we are going to transition to a storyline that Kevin and I have been focusing on over the last couple of weeks. And this is one of the biggest surprises that we've seen from the NFL this year. And that is the Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks just continue to be one of the more consistent teams that we've seen in the NFL this year. When to be quite honest with you, Kev, I don't think anybody expected it. So the Seahawks beat the Cardinals 31 to 21. They improved to a six and three record. They have the number one spot in the NFC West at the halfway point of the season. And once again, they are just getting 
complimentary play from Geno Smith, Kenneth Walker. The defense is coming up with turnovers. And by and large, this may be one of the, I would say, they could be a legitimate contender in the NFC halfway through the season. We'll see how the rest of the season plays out for them. But as of right now, this team is for real. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, where would you say that the Seahawks rank in the rest of the NFC now that they stand at a 6-3 and three record after knocking off the Cardinals in Week 9? Well, let's be transparent, of course. There are plenty of good teams. Some of the best teams reside in the NFC. You have the Eagles at 8-0. They escape on a Thursday night close one to the Texans. They ended up routing and turning it around in the second half, thank God. Then you got Dallas at 6-2. and two. Or Excuse me, how could I forget? Minnesota sitting at 7-1. and one. Dallas and the Giants are 6-2. and two. And you're looking at this and you're saying, there's a lot going on right now in the NFC. There's a lot of competitive teams. The 49ers record may not reflect it, but they're also a pretty good team when fully healthy and like on the ball. And it's just, how can you make a prediction on who is after the Eagles? It's really difficult because it's such a close tie in terms of not only record, but I mean, the, the strength and schedule would be the one that break it down for it. And I really do think that the Seahawks have played some relatively good teams. They've played the Niners. They've played the Rams. They've played the... No, actually, the Seahawks have not, actually. If I remember correctly, I'm sorry. I'm sitting here spewing nonsense. They went and they beat the Broncos to start the season. They lose to the 49ers embarrassingly, so I was correct. They lose to the Falcons. They beat the Lions in a shootout. They lose to the Saints. They beat the Cardinals, Chargers, Giants, and Cardinals again. So, I mean, in terms of competition, they have played a tough 49ers team. They have played the L.A. Chargers. They have played the Giants, but we all know the Chargers aren't what they used to be. So, I mean, I would have to say the the I'd have to say the Seahawks probably fall within the third or fourth seed, depending on who you ask. Just because I I feel that after the Eagles, it's pretty much a toss up, like I had stated. So, I mean, I I gotta go with Dallas because I think they have the, the best. I think they have the best defense out of all the teams that I had mentioned. And then I'd have to go with the the, the Vikings because the Vikings just they're in close games every week. Um. Some of their games are a lot closer than what they need to be. I mean, for God's sakes, they almost lost to the Commanders today, which is just, you know, Taylor Heineke and all those boys and, and Ron Rivera being on the hot seat and how inconsistent that defense can be. I would probably say in order, Philly, Dallas, Minnesota, and then Seattle or New York. Because Seattle did beat New York, I'm going to put Seattle right above them. So, I mean, there's we're talking about 8-0, and 6-2, 6-2. Well, I keep forgetting Minnesota. 8-0, and 7-1, 6-2, and 6-3. That is ridiculous that the top five seeds in the NFC are six wins and above. So that makes it very competitive. Now, in terms of just going over the game in general, you have to look at what we've been saying all year long. The Seahawks are a perfectly balanced team. 158 yards on the ground, 275 yards in the air. Geno Smith was sacked two times, so he was pretty much upright for the majority of this game with a passer rating of 106.9, so basically 107. And... They kept the ball away from the other team. He had one interception early on that was a batted pass, and it ended up being an interception. I hate the fact that that counts as an interception because that's not his fault, that it was slapped and then taken away. What are you supposed to say? What can you not say about this? The defense found a way to make adjustments in the second half, and they found a way to keep Arizona at least in front of them and within striking distance. I know that Seattle scored 21 points in the second half, and I know that Arizona scored 14 points, but... It wasn't in a manner in which you're sitting there panicking saying, I don't think the Seahawks got this. The Seahawks found a way to keep the lead the entire game. 
It was 10-7 to going into halftime, and they continued to pile on that offense, and they continued to just make strides with keeping them honest with the ground game, with Kenneth Walker having over 100 yards, and Geno Smith bouncing back from the early turnover, and just being consistent. 26 of 34, you have to applaud the man playing at an MVP caliber level, maybe not flashy-wise, but in terms of leadership, efficiency, completion percentage, he is the guy this year. So I have to give credit where credit is due. I have to acknowledge the defense of the Seahawks limiting DeAndre Hopkins, who has been the hottest receiver since he's come back from suspension, to just four catches for 36 yards. One of those catches being a touchdown, yes, but he's been averaging over 100 yards and 10-plus catches over the course of the last two weeks. He was only targeted five times. It's just you have to acknowledge the fact that the Seahawks defense is going to continue to find a way to take the ball away from the other team as well. They sacked Kyler Murray, what was it, five times, and they forced two fumbles to which they were able to recover one of them. So you have to acknowledge that they're, they're able to do things and, 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 and capitalize on plenty of opportunities to where they're like, you know what, we need to stop here. They get the stop, they end up scoring, whether it's a field goal, Geno leads them down, they take, clock, they take time off the clock. The Seahawks are for real. I've had enough of people saying, oh, it's a fluke. Oh, it's a schedule. You can say the same thing about the Eagles with the schedule. You can say the same thing about the Cowboys. You can say the same thing about the Giants. Schedules are never going to be top four team, top five team, top team in the league, uh, top 10 team. Like it's Schedules are always going to be inconsistent. I mean, some second half schedules, depending on who you're looking into, could be some of the hardest schedules in the league. I mean, for God's sakes, I went over the Colts one. They have two relatively winnable games. Everybody else is well over above 500. So who are you really arguing with? Yourself? Probably. The Seahawks look great. They're making consistent strides. This is another division opponent that they've beaten. And I think, truthfully, they are in the runnings, not only for a division title. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody tried to play down to them. If they were to face Philly in the divisional round, I would not be surprised if they knock off the Eagles. Kyle, you can pan this one to you real quick. Because we've been saying for the course of the last two, three weeks with the way that the Eagles have been inconsistent in the second half... You play a team like Seattle and you underestimate them. They're running away with that game. Yeah. It just depends on whether or not that that Geno Smith and that offense could be able to rise to the occasion against that Philly defense. Because, Kev, let's face it, that Philly defense can't be stifling. Especially when they're able to bring effective pass rushes. And they'll force opposing offenses into some errant passes that could lead to some turnovers. And... We've Tell seen that them... to Damian Pierce with 140 yards and a team that's one six and one. I'm just saying it. They can be beat. Well, what happened in the second half defensively for them? He still ran said... all over the place. It's it's that was Davis Mills in the pass rush. I'm saying if you but... limit them and you keep the ball and get them tired, Geno Smith has been able to get the ball out effectively. Is what I'm saying. It's it's possible they yeah. take second halves off in terms of offensively. They don't score a lot. They can. They can at times. There have been multiple instances where they've definitely taken their foot off the pedal in the second half. But, I mean, just to kind of kick it back to Seattle here, I mean, Kev, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, we we got to really start considering putting Geno Smith in comeback player of the year, Pete Carroll as coach of the year. Coach because, of the year, yeah. Because nobody expected the Seahawks to be at 6-3. and three. I don't even know if Seattle fans even had this expectation of being in this position nine weeks into the year or the first week of November. This is kind of like a dream-type scenario if you're a Seattle Seahawks fan at this point. And it's really just been... I keep honing in on the same point with the Seahawks. They are just solid, top to bottom. 
I've always said that they've been very complimentary in their run game, in their passing game offensively. And once again, they just kind of live up to that standard and they're able to do it consistently time and time again. And, you know, I know Geno had the one pick six that was definitely, it was an errant pass, but it was really just a good play defensively by the Cardinals. But he did not let that face him. He was able to bounce back and he was able to lead some effective drives in the second half, especially in that fourth quarter. That's when the game was relatively close. If you guys were watching that game, I mean, it was a three-point game going into that fourth quarter, or it was a one-possession game, I should say. And yet, when I look back at that fourth quarter, man, Seattle just dominated that fourth quarter. Uh, they won that one by the score of 14-7, to just specifically in uh, points for each team. But overall, man, I thought that Kenneth Walker stepped up huge in that fourth quarter as well. I know Geno came up with some nice plays here and there, but the fact that they were able to lean on the run game and really kind of bleed that clock in the fourth quarter and really just kind of chew up the time possession there, that was huge. And, you know, not only that, there was a point in time where Arizona came back in the fourth. It's 24 to 21. The Cardinals look like they're kind of ready to get back into the game. All they got to do is just force a punt. And then they could possibly lead to a game-winning drive there. Didn't happen. Seattle locked down offensively. They were able to extend that drive. That was a Kenneth Walker touchdown drive that put them up 31-21. to They were just able to just get solid ground plays where you know Kenneth Walker's chewing up 8, 9, 10 yards consistently. And Geno did his thing. So you know, looking back at this game, we did pick the Seahawks to win this one. And... This was definitely more of a competitive game than we saw the first time around when these teams played. If I remember their score correctly, I think Seattle won by the score of 17-9 to in that first matchup against the Cardinals. And just based off the fact that DeAndre Hopkins was going to be in this game compared to when he wasn't in the first matchup between these two. So I thought that there was definitely going to be more of an emphasis on this being a higher scoring game. And it did kind of live up to the expectation. But overall... The Seahawks sitting at a 6-3 and three record, it's just phenomenal. We'll see whether or not that they could be able to maintain it in the second half of the year, and that's going to be the biggest thing for them moving forward. But as of right now, if I had to put some early contenders for comeback player of the year, Geno Smith is definitely one of them. And then I got to put Pete Carroll up there as potential coach of the year because after that Russell Wilson trade to Denver, I think a lot of people were expecting that Seattle would just kind of fall back into last place in the NFC West, and they would start a rebuild to focus on the draft for this upcoming year. That is not the case. This team looks like they're really kind of running and gunning at this point, and they could definitely be a force to be reckoned with if they continue this style of play. And if it transitions into the playoffs, this may not be a team you want to go up against. So congrats on the Seahawks uh, getting this dub. And we'll see where it goes from here. I think we need to take the phrase surprising, shocking, despite what our initial analysis was or initial predictions at the end of the year. I think Seattle has shaken the underdog narrative off of their shoulders. I think that they have eliminated the doubters because of the consistency that they've shown. And the Geno haters have, have gone away now. I think that they have dissipated because he's proven it week in and week out through nine weeks of this season leading the division, beating good teams, finding ways to hold leads, and even some occasional comebacks. Mm -hmm. He's done everything he's needed to do. He's done it efficiently. And Pete Carroll 
the dirty, nasty narrative that people were saying, oh, he's got to go, he's too old, his style of play or his style of offense needs to leave, Russell needs to be free, oh, shout out to Russ. It's looking the other way around. Russ looks bad, Pete Carroll looks gold, and he looks like a genius because now they're able to run the ball 35, 40 times without an issue. It doesn't have to be the ball's got to be in Russell's hands. I want to throw the ball every couple of plays. I got to force the ball downfield because I feel like there's a better matchup. If they're not stacking the box, second and 10, first and 10, why not run the ball? You have good running backs, and they've shown. They've been able to draft good running backs. It's just Chris Carson can't stay healthy. Rashad Penny can't stay healthy. And now you have a diamond in the rough in Kenneth Walker out of Michigan State who is deemed potentially the best back in that class. You have the opportunity now to have a balanced and effective offense that you don't need a quarterback to throw the ball 40 to 50 times. This is what an efficient offensive scheme looks like. For those of you that we've been talking to specifically, the people that think offenses need to score 45 points a week and throw the ball 55 times, it's not necessary. You have good teams, that means you're their balanced teams. You have a good defense, doesn't have to be a top five defense. This is what well-coached, efficient players and good football looks like. The Seattle Seahawks should be an example of teams that people need to reference and say, you know what? As bad as we've been in the past, as bad as a narrative as we had in the offseason, we're going to ignore that and we're going to combat that with what we have in this locker room. And they've had their fair share of injuries as well. So I think Seattle is truly rewriting their own destiny. And I'm loving the narrative that is now proceeding with Geno Smith getting the credit he deserves, Pete Carroll getting the accolades that he potentially may receive at the end of the year. And this defense is turning it around in the most important part of the year when you're trying to find your identity. So kudos and shout out to the Seahawks because they've earned not only my respect, but hopefully the peers in the NFL as well. Yeah. And I, I think it's because I think really the players have bought in and I think when you look back to the Russell tenure the last couple of years, maybe guys just didn't buy in. Maybe they just didn't have confidence that Russell could just effectively lead that team. Or maybe it was just kind of the whole, you know, Kev, I mean, when we look to the Russell Wilson situation in Denver, you know, the idea of him possibly being, I guess, a point of contention with some of his teammates, that's already flared up in Denver. I wonder if Seattle just kept a really good lid on it when he was there and kept that in house because I mean, you could look at some of Russell's former teammates, you know, Marshawn Lynch, Richard Sherman, they, they have a really lot of stories have been coming out. A lot they, of stories. They, they haven't really held back when it comes to their, I guess some of the words that they've held towards Russell Wilson and him just being the teammate that he is. And not only that, you know, for him, you know, to essentially, when you call Russell Wilson, you have to call his publicist or you have to call like his like, his manager or something like that. I'm like, there's a lot going on there that, that, that really kind of muddies the water. But I don't think that that's the case here with Geno Smith and the effective play that he's been able to lead with the Seahawks offense. And I just keep rounding back to this point. It's just very consistent. Is he like top of the leaderboard and every week for throwing 350? yards 400 yards a game that's i mean granted that can't win you football games but you don't need to be that you know he's very consistent he's putting up 250 to 275 yards a game he's throwing a touchdown or two a game he's limiting his turnovers and not only that when you can lean on your run game like they have with kenneth walker that's a winning formula and if they're able to maintain that for the rest of the year they can win that division bro 
they could uh, 100% win that division. So, you know, hopefully, you know, for their sake, they keep it up. But you know, we'll see what happens in the second half of the year. There's a lot of time left for them to either extend their winning ways or potentially screw it up. So we'll kind of see where it goes from there. Speaking of a team that is really kind of down in the dumps right now, that is the Green Bay Packers. The Packers have become essentially a tire fire. They lose to the Detroit Lions. Yes, I said that right. The Detroit Lions, 15 to 9. Kev, like this might be like low low key a high baseball score with that score, 15 to 9. The Packers looked awful. Aaron Rodgers looked like a shell of himself. He turned the ball over consistently against the Lions, in some cases within the red zone at the goal line. And by and large, the Packers season now hangs in the balance halfway through the season. And with them sitting at a three and six record, it is not a rosy picture for them. So Kevin, to kick this one to you with the Packers losing to the Lions in week nine, and now them sitting at a three and six record. Do you think that their season is effectively over? Their season was over the second that Aaron Rodgers held them hostage this offseason for $50 million a year, which inherently forced Devontae Adams to seek a trade, and the offseason continues from there. Everybody thought that Aaron Rodgers was the key, right? Back-to-back MVPs, he was constantly in the playoffs, always winning the division, always competitive. Devontae Adams leaves, and this is the shambles that is left behind, right? You can't say it's because he's not making attempts at trying to create relationships with other receivers in terms of at least giving them opportunities because we have seen receivers drop the ball, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, receivers running the wrong routes, miscommunication as to adjustments when a defender is giving you a certain amount of space. There's just there's, there's a litany of reasons. I mean, he threw the ball to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 receivers got targets. Alan Lazard led the way with 10 targets and he had 87 yards on four receptions for a hundred yards for a touchdown. He is trying to divvy up everything he can to multiple people and it's just not working. Aaron Rodgers is definitely a portion to blame a hundred percent, but you have to look at it and say the wide receivers coach, the offensive coordinator, the play caller in the floor, something's off. There's no reason that one sole player is the reason that this team was that good. As good as Devontae Adams is, there's no reason this team should regress as bad as they have. I mean, for God's sakes, they are one win away from being at the same record as the Detroit Lions. This is not okay. The organization, I'm going to say it, and it's going to sound silly, the organization to me seems to want Aaron Rodgers to suffer, which is weird considering they gave in to the demands of Aaron Rodgers wanting the money that he wanted. Hear me out. You know that you needed a receiver earlier in the in the past couple of years that complements Devontae Adams. Double and triple teams, still putting up twelve to 1,500 yards a year, double-digit touchdowns, over 100 receptions, whatever, right? Obviously, at that point in time, the best wide receiver quarterback duo in the league. Best receiver in the league, there was no question. But you needed a second fiddle to Batman. Batman needed a Robin, whatever analogy you want to use. They draft a quarterback. Last year, in the offseason, Devontae leaves. They acquired Sammy Watkins. They drafted a, a couple of receivers. I mean, I think it's Dobbs and and I don't even know. Christian Watson. Because, Christian, Christian Watson. There you go. Excuse me. I was looking at the name and I was like, that's the guy. That's what you equipped 
that's what you equipped Aaron Rodgers with. You didn't chase anybody in free agency. You didn't chase after Julio. Whatever the case may be, you didn't really pursue anybody to replace the most important piece of your offense, apparently. I feel like this organization is purposefully putting Aaron Rodgers in a negative position because it's like you know what he needs and you refuse to provide it. You're an organization in the NFL that wants to win, but you're not giving him what he needs. You bolster the defense. You get the position players that you wanted. Jair Alexander comes back healthy. I mean, I, Zadarius Smith leaves in free agency. It's, the Packers front office almost looks as bad as the Colts because you, you know what you need and you refuse to do it. Ballard knew that receivers were needed. Ballard knew that we needed backup offensive line. What, we, did we do any of it? No. Did the Packers do any of it? No. And here we are. Three and six. Aaron Rodgers looks absolutely flustered, frustrated, as he should be. But for you to sit there and put up nine points against the Lions, the Lions had one win this season. Like, how in the hell did the Packers not find a way to bounce back? Personally, I predicted this Lions um, upset, but I, I didn't want to put it on the episode. I didn't think I was, you know, I was like, you know what? No, statistically, I think that the Packers are going to bounce back this week. I have to stop going with statistics, Kyle, because every time I go against my gut, I'm wrong. I didn't say it publicly, but I was like, watch the Lions win this game. And they did. So shout out to the, to the Lions for doing everything they needed to do. I mean, it wasn't a, the cleanest game in the world, nor was it the prettiest game, but they got it done. They ran the ball for 117 yards. Jared Goff had 137 yards and two touchdowns. He wasn't sacked. He threw an interception. They had a couple of fumbles, or excuse me, no fumbles. I'm looking at Green Bay side. And aside from the interception, they played relatively good football. Obviously, the defense played well, and they were able to limit Aaron Rodgers. They were able to hinder their ability to move the ball consistently. And here we are. The Packers' season is done. Aaron Rodgers will probably retire. And Green Bay will start a rebuild just like the Colts have to because they don't have anything going for them. And it's, it's sad because they have a lot of good players in different positions that deserve better. So, again, shout out to the Lions. They played a great game. They played a, 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 very struck, a very bad and struggling Green Bay team. But it's about who wins and comes, comes out on top, not the narrative going into the game. Kudos to the Lions and Dan Campbell. Yeah, I, when it comes to the Packers specifically, Kev, they just look defeated just the inconsistency on the offensive side of the ball. And Kev, I remember we were talking about this earlier in the episode where a lot of the issues that the Bucks and the Rams were dealing with, they seem to mirror each other. And a lot of it's just, I mean, the end result is just the offensive inconsistency is so striking. And that's what's holding the team back. When it comes to the Packers, you could essentially say the result is the same. The how you get to it is a little bit different. It just has to do with the inconsistency and the lack of chemistry in the wide receiving core. But now it's getting to the point where Aaron Rodgers is so flustered, he's turning the ball over. And not just a little bit, a lot of it. Okay, when we look back to Aaron Rodgers' MVP seasons the last couple of years, one of the hallmarks associated with those seasons in particular was his ability to not turn the ball over. I think if I remember last year, he only had like four interceptions, like four or five at most. And you could, you compare that with this year. He's turning the ball over left and right. He had three interceptions in that Lions game. I mean, we're talking about Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers, you know, I'll just be honest. This guy is one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history. He doesn't really have the hardware to prove it. But it's just from a pure athleticism, skill perspective. And what he's able to do when he executes at a high level. There are very few quarterbacks that can be able to reach that level. 
And it's just, it, well, it's astonishing to see how poorly he's playing based on the circumstances. It's just, it's just tough to watch this offense move. And they have decent pieces on the offensive side of the ball. It's just, they just can't be able to move the ball consistently. And I was just as shocked to see the Packers struggle this badly against what I would consider an inferior team in the Lions. The Lions are not a good team this year. And granted, I know that you could say that the Lions, they at least, you know, try to put the effort out there. Dan Campbell will rally those players. It just doesn't lead to winning results. I got to say, they play inspired football against that Green Bay Packers team. To be able to hold that Packers offense to nine points, I got to give them kudos for that. But when it comes to the Packers, I mean, to be nine weeks into the season and sit here and say that their season is over, Kev, I would have never expected that. Ever. I mean, at a three and six record, you know, unless the Vikings were to utterly fall apart, it's the only way that the Packers are going to get relevant in the NFC North this year. It's not going to happen. There's a very good chance that the Vikings could finish up with this division within the first or second week in December. You're talking about three weeks, maybe even four weeks left in the season at that point. They're just that far ahead compared to everybody else in the NFC North. And I think when it comes to what's going to happen with Rodgers after this season, Kev, it's going to be very interesting because there have been rumblings about him potentially moving on from football. And maybe this is one of those times where he could see a window of opportunity and leave and just, you know, drive off into the sunset after this season. I still have to kind of see the season play out just because if the Packers find their rhythm, which at this point is a very tall task and there's no guarantee that they're going to make that happen. Maybe he sticks around. Maybe he plays this thing out. Maybe he just chalks this one up as a lost year. Maybe a, a year where they figure out some issues or well, they, they could look back and maybe see, Oh, well we got to fix these issues here and maybe, we can bounce back going into next year. But I'm just shocked that they look this bad, that they look this inept. And I mean, with the way that they've been playing the last couple of weeks, it shouldn't come as a surprise to me just because they've been on a losing streak for the last couple of weeks. But yeah, it's amazing how bad they look. And I, I, just, I can't get over the fact that we're nine weeks in and their season's over. It's just shocking uh, to see such a great quarterback leading a team that just cannot get it done. And a part of it is on him. You know, he does deserve some criticism here, but I, I think that there are some issues with that wide receiver core that are just so striking, and I don't think he's going to be able to resolve them this year. So it's unfortunate with the state of the Packers right now, but, you know, when you lose to the when you lose at Alliance, that really kind of speaks for itself, and I'll just leave it at that. I mean, amazing isn't exactly the word I would use to describe it. I would probably probably use something completely in the opposite direction. It's uh, it, it's kind of disappointing it, that this is where they are. It's what it's, it's crazy. It's, a, it's amazing that I can't really fathom how we got here with them. Like I can, not in this manner, not in this manner. I. To score nine points against the Lions is I'm trying to come up with the words to describe how, how I feel right now. 
is disheartening is is, is i think it's frustrating i think it, i think it's more like i'm just shocked maybe i should say shocking maybe not amazing maybe i should just say shocked yeah i think that's probably a better adjective to use just because i knew that they were going to struggle a little bit but for it to be this consistent that that's what's really kind of getting me like bro they've what they've lost five straight games I didn't think that they had that in. First of all, I mean, if they if they drop a game or two, you know, they have like a two game losing streak. Fine, you know, you know those types of losing streaks happen. But five, I did not see that coming. I thought that they would have been able to bounce back at some point and get a dub in their in their win column. But man, I I'm just shocked. Like I'm just shocked to see the just the inconsistency from this team. And there have been many times, Kev, where they've been in these games despite how bad they've played. Agreed. So a, a lot of these games... And a they, lot of the games that they won were nail-biters. Outside of the Chicago victory, which they won by 17, the Bucks game was by two, the Patriots game was by three. Like, this is... This is ridiculous. Like, there is no other word to use. This is absolutely ludicrous. This is flabbergasting. I mean, there's there's a bunch of synonyms that you could use to say that this should not be happening, especially to the back-to-back MVP. It just... I don't know. I don't think it makes sense. And I think that this team has a lot to figure out. And I blame a lot of this on Aaron Rodgers. But at the same time, the front office gets a big share to blame because it's like, yo... I need to take this car from here to my mom's house, but I don't got a right tire. I need a tire to get from point A to B because I only got three tires, but you keep putting a donut or you don't replace the flat tire and you're driving on a flat. It's the equivalent. It's the same thing. You need all four tires, which is going to be your phases in football. Quarterback play, your offense needs to be healthy and balanced. Good defense. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's special teams. There's a hundred different things you can put as to a reason why a football team needs to be good. And the Packers weren't able to do that. And I find that to be disheartening and just ridiculously almost like, now I'm struggling to figure out a word. As a front office, you need to be assertive in free agency. You need to be, um, you need to want to, I, I don't even know. Like I, I'm at a loss for words because it's like, a, it's, it's like surprising to me that an NFL GM, owner, VP, whatever the organizational structure is that has to go into picking out free agents and scouting talent, they have failed to do that since they drafted Jordan Love. They've not done anything to help him. You had no, regardless if Devontae Adams stays or not, right? There's nobody outside of him that was able to help. All the targets were to Adams. All the touchdowns were to Adams. There was the occasional dump off because Adams drew uh, the double team or the play call or the defensive scheme was to, to, to take him out of the equation and that's why other people succeeded. But now that he's gone... You can play single high. Uh, you can play single high man coverage. You can play two deep safeties. Like what? There's, yeah. you, you can you can send that fifth rusher because you can trust man coverage. There's no separation. There, there, there's no there's no wide receiver that can create a mismatch. There's no tight end that's going to be able to shed a block like a Travis Kelsey. There's no running back like an Alvin Kamara that can catch out of the backfield and make people miss consistently because we know that Aaron Jones has games here and again. But again. This offense is not equipped to be competitive in this league the way that it is currently constructed. And just because of the subtraction of one player being gone, that does not mean this team should be this poor. Yeah, it's just... I don't know if all of this was tied to Devontae, but I 
He's the one piece I, that left outside of the, the, the uh, Zadarius Smith on the offensive side. The one piece. I'm not it, saying it's solely, it's just, but it, it, that's what it looks like. I, I mean, I will say this. When it came to Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers, kept until Devontae went to the Raiders, that was by far the best quarterback wide receiver duo in the league. Correct. And with, with, without a doubt. And not just, I'm not even looking at it from a statistical perspective. I could pull up the numbers and use that as an argument. I'm talking about how they complemented each other. The chemistry was so locked down between the two of them. I've never seen a quarterback and a wide receiver on the same page as those two. They were in essentially lockstep. And I understand that, you know, the personnel change is a major one with them, but I did not think it would regress to the point where the offense is sputtering to the point where they're putting up nine points against the Lions. You know, it's what I'll even say this. If you lost at the Lions in a shootout, let's say it was like 31 to 27. At least I could say, well, the offense is at least putting up some sort of production. That's not happening. You know, you got Rodgers having what three picks three three Kathy, hold up let me let me look up his stats just from last year alone because pretty, sh- pretty sure he I, had like seven picks or some shit like that maybe so last last year kev he had four interceptions mm-hmm. he had 37 touchdowns to four interceptions and the year before that he had 48 touchdowns to five interceptions like what are we talking about? His ratio was always top tier on a historic level on a regular basis. It, it just, I get, there's, I just, it, I'm literally stumbling over my own words thinking, was Devontae that crucial? And I didn't think that it would have been that bad. But you combine that with his absence and just the lack of, the, I, I say lack of chemistry. I should I should be saying lack of trust. I think that's the better way to describe it. The lack of trust between Aaron Rodgers and the receivers is so striking. The guy has 14 touchdowns and seven interceptions this year. Kev, this is the most amount of interceptions that he's thrown since 2016. And if I look at this correctly, the last time that he threw double-digit interceptions in one season was 2010. I think that was the year they won the Super Bowl, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. It was. I mean, the guy's gone over a decade plus without throwing double-digit turnovers or double-digit interceptions. That that could very well happen here, which is just shocking. I just you know I mean, what I, el- you know what else is shocking? The fact that this game just went into overtime, guys. It is seventeen to seventeen which in game? Kansas City. In Kansas City, and they're going into overtime. Kansas City has won the toss. They've elected to receive just to. Put it out there in terms of quarterback comparison. Malik Willis is 5 of 15 for 80 yards. Patrick Mahomes is 37 of 58 for 381. This is a prime example of the Kansas City Chiefs struggling against bad teams. They struggled against Indianapolis and they failed. They failed. Tennessee is playing a backup quarterback that has two NFL starts under his belt. Derrick Henry only has 114 yards. Patrick Mahomes has been sacked four times. Only, Dude, compared to his 200-yard performance, compared to the games we've seen him have 150 in like four or five consecutive games, to limit him to just 114, he had 98 at half. 
I mean, Kev. Ninety-eight be, and a half. That is sixteen be, yards in the second half. Kev, be careful with statements saying only one fourteen. Kev, the the Colts only had one hundred twenty-six. Why you gotta go there? I'm talking about the fact that he ended the half at nine. He only had 16 rushing yards, and they were winning the entire second half until the fourth quarter, until the final two and a half minutes. Patrick Mahomes drives them down the field to score a touchdown and convert a two-point conversion to tie the game. Yeah. Yeah. Derrick Henry only had 16 yards in that second half. What, Casey can't make adjustments? Casey can't step up? But it wasn't because of Malik Willis. It wasn't because Derrick Henry destroyed them. Kansas City has not been playing good. They only have 73 yards rushing on the ground, and Pat Mahomes has thrown the ball damn near 60 times. I, I'm aware. I, I saw the... That's the not good. That's, what are you going to do? That's their style. That's just their style. That's just the way that they run it. So Well, it's not a good way. Pat's getting on the field right now to go into the overtime period, so we'll see what happens. Right. We, all know, we all know what happens <laughs> every time Kansas City wins the toss. Unless they, they find a way to go down the field and score. Yeah, unless it's against the Bills. That was a, exactly. that, was a, that was a shocking result. So, so you know, we'll, we'll keep you guys abreast with that, but I know we have one final segment, or not necessarily segment, to close it out. But I, let me ha- get this one. Let me get this one. Okay. Yeah, let me get this one. So, Kev, I know it brings you much sorrow and despair. The Houston Astros have won the World Series. Uh, they won the World Series in six games over the Philadelphia Phillies. And I will say, it was actually a pretty entertaining World Series, all things considered. I know th- I know, you have some beef with the Astros, and that's well documented. But overall, I thought it was a very entertaining World Series. Um, I don't want to pat myself on my own back here, but I think I did, you did call, call the Astros, Astros in, in six. six. So um, Personally, I would have loved for that series to go seven. I think both teams played up to that standard, but I mean, looking back at that game six, I mean, Alvarez pretty much just blew the doors off of that game with that three run home run. Um, and that was despite the fact the Phillies were up one, nothing in that game. So, you know, I guess the Astros just found a way to dig deep, finds a little bit of resilience and, you know, have a comeback victory in game six over the Phillies. And Kev just, I mean, overall, just give me your thoughts about, first of all, the Astros winning the world series. And also you, I know you kind of have become kind of like a pseudo Philly sports fan over the last couple of years. And I know you were kind of rocking with the Phillies on this one. Uh, just I mean, kind most of, give of the me, world was. Yeah, just give me your thoughts about, you know, the Astros winning the World Series and really just the remarkable postseason run that the Phillies had despite falling a little bit short. I will give my kudos. I'm not a salty fan. I have no animosity towards a team that won. They won fair and square. The Astros are World Series champions. So again, congratulations before someone, you know, narrates me or lists me as somebody who can't accept when their team loses. And at the end of the day, the Yankees were not in the World Series. The Phillies played a good a good series and the Astros were the better team. It happens. I think that the Phillies making the run that they did shows that you can never count anybody out in sports. You can never assume that someone's going to lose based upon regular season record. It is always what I always say to be the hottest team in the postseason or the hottest team going into the postseason will always have the greatest chance to make a run because you get hot at just the right time and that's how you win. So, I mean, kudos to the Phillies for putting it out there. Their pitching staff, in terms of their starting pitchers like Nola, were not able to get it going. Syndergaard wasn't able to really get a consistent rhythm. Zach Wheeler gets pulled in game six when he only had three hits allowed in six innings. They make a change. Alvarez hits the shot. The tires are immediately deflated in the moving vehicle that the Phillies had in terms of holding the lead that they did in game six. And that's that's all she wrote. 
I think that the Phillies lost all confidence after the no-hitter that the Astros threw in Game 3, obviously, or excuse me, in Game 4. Obviously, we know what happened in Game uh, in game 5 where the Phillies were trying to come back from a 3-1 deficit. They knock it to 2. Uh, excuse me. They were down 3-1. to 3-1. to one, They make it 3-2, and then, you know, the Astros were able to hold on as long as they did, and here we are. You take the series back to, to Houston, and um, this is what happens. I predicted Phillies in six, even though I knew that Houston was a better team. Or excuse me, I predicted Phillies in seven, but I knew Houston was a better team. And, um, you know, as much as I say I, I rock with, with, with Philly sports a lot more recently, it's definitely never going to be a baseball thing. I cheered for the Phillies because I did not want the Astros to win, so let's not get it twisted. I will never leave my Yankees, despite the narrative and news headlines that they've been creating over the last 24 hours. I'm not getting into that shit. But again, congratulations to the Houston Astros. I am merely happy for Dusty Baker, and that is about it. The rest of the Astros, I am still going to hold accountable for what happened in 2017, but that's about as far as it goes. So at the end of the day, they won, and that's all I can say about it. So congratulations. You were salty. No, they won. What am I supposed to do? Throw a tantrum? They won. You still hold a lot of animosity towards that team. Because they cheated. Did they not cheat? Did they not get caught cheating? If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Stop. <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Exactly. So it may, it make no damn difference. I will hold 2017 accountable because everybody that is a sports uh, fan in the United States of America knows that title should have been vacated. If you're going to take a Heisman Trophy away from a collegiate player, you can take away a championship of an organization that everybody in the organization knew they were cheating. And it was well-documented and proven in video evidence, confessions, players that played on that team that ended up feeling guilty and coming out in the media, whether anonymously or publicly. This team, or should I say that team, is probably one of the biggest disgraces in sports. That title should have never counted. But with this team, do you hold that same Different team. No, energy? no, no. Different team. Okay. Different team. Different team. They won this year fair and square despite... All the posts and the rumors of you know potential cheating allegations with um, maybe um, foreign oil substance. or sticky, pine, yeah, foreign substances, pine tar, whatever have you. It doesn't make a difference. They won. People use pine tar. I mean, Garrett Cole used pine tar multiple times. People to document that there was a reason why his breaking ball was so crazy while in Houston and while in New York. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like pitchers don't do that. So um, the Astros won. I said it a thousand times. I'm almost ready to throw up. Because I've said it so many times. I acknowledge it, and I'm not jealous. They won, and that's it. That's all I'm going to talk about it anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, th there's not really much left for me to say. Um, I really thought the Astros, to be quite honest with you, Gab, I thought that they were kind of pushed to their limit kind of earlier in that series. And Agreed. Philly really kind of gave them a legitimate run because, what was it, game three? The Astros got smacked in game seven zip, lost, yep. they lost that game seven to zip but i think to me it was just the resilience factor for the astros to be able to come back from that 7-0 smackdown in game three you know and not only to come back to, to throw a combined no hitter in game four i mean you want to talk about turning the page and forgetting about the past really quickly they were able to do that extremely quickly so i gotta give them credit for that kev i know your eyes just blew up what happened the Chiefs are going for it on fourth down. They're in the red zone. They're within the 15-yard uh, line, and Andy Reid is elected to go for it on fourth and run and, and fourth and one instead of kicking the field goal. What's the down? Oh, fourth and one? 
Yeah, I was say, what's they called the they called a timeout. But enemy, the enemy is uh, looking to make some some adjustments and whatever they called. But um, the Chiefs are being aggressive and they're going for it. Pat well, looked you're... off this, this 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 the quarter before and this overtime. He missed a couple of open targets and some receivers had to come back to the ball to make some good catches. So, what yard line are they on? Uh, they're within the twenty. So I'm trying to see where they line up because the camera always pans out. So give me just a second to tell you. Because Pat is ca- walking to the line of scrimmage. I got GameCast on. I'm yeah, gonna, I put it on. I'm not going to tell you yet. I'll let you figure it out can, for yourself. Dude, can we like... I hate the fact that the camera's got to pan out to both coaches. They got to pan out to the sideline. They got to pan out to the audience. They got to pan out to the ref. They got to pan out to Pat's face. They are on the 12. No, 13. Okay, well, they're probably... that. Is that the stream that you're watching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little behind. Yeah, it is. They got the first down with Juju. Juju's actually been kind of a nice, nice little fill Addition spot to, for me yeah. for fantasy. Like, oh, you I got mean, him in fantasy? I've had him in fantasy. I was very disappointed with him for the first six weeks, but the last three weeks that I've had him on my roster, he's actually been pretty consistent. He's putting up somewhere in between usually like fifteen to twenty points in the last couple of weeks. I think in some cases he put up like twenty four or twenty five against the Forty ers Hey, so, shout out to uh, Call of Duty for bringing the out offense together. They admitted that uh, Travis Kelsey, Juju Smith-Schuster, MVS, Pat, and Pat Mahomes played on the bye week. They played Call of Duty together. That's always good. That's dope. See, that's team building right there. It's a bye it, week, too. It's not like it, Kyler Murray playing on double XP weekend and losing. Yeah, they don't have the same they don't have the same chemistry out in Arizona compared to KC, so kind of worked against them in that regard. But Oh, yeah. But in fantasy, Brock, I got killed this week. Yeah, me too. Let's not I, talk about it. We both we both played against Joe Mixon this week, so it wasn't yeah. a good week. He, he had fifty five points. He had five touchdowns. What am I supposed to do about that? Like, there's nothing. One hundred and fifty. One hundred and fifty five yards rushing and five touchdowns. And for those of you that don't play fantasy football, obviously a touchdown is worth six points, and then obviously rushing yards are one point per per ten yards. So fifteen points for one hundred fifty three, and then obviously six times that's thirty. So there you go, right there. And he had a couple of receptions and some catches too. So, I was hurt. I was hurt seeing like how like and it was quick too. He got him like within like the first. I think he got most of the touchdowns in the first half. Yeah, I think he had four at half. Four touchdowns at half is crazy, bro. It's just ridiculous. I mean, Alvin Kamara had that the week before, right? Didn't he have five touchdowns? So I mean, I it's, I it seems like five. a running back. I think he had three. He might have had four. Yeah, I know he. I, I know he popped off though. He didn't pop off like Mixon did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think you're right. I think it was four. He had three receiving and then one rushing, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. I know it was definitely three receiving, though. I think, I mean, I could look it up real quick. Just, I mean, it doesn't I, really matter. Third and 10 at the 10. Pat is scrambling. Pat is scrambling. Throws it in the dirt. Fourth and 10. They're going to kick the field goal, probably. Yeah. So yeah, they the offensive the- line looks absolutely atrocious today in Kansas City. Like Pat's been running the entire overtime as well as the end of the fourth quarter. He has had no time to throw. Rushed into a lot of decisions, almost threw an interception. With Travis Kelsey had to come back to the ball. They triple team Travis. It's been ugly in the end zone. It's been Travis ugly, ran that. Uh, Travis ran that that infamous zig route where you like come across, fake the slant, and cut back inside, and like yep. he had a safe, he had a safety underneath, a safety on a corner underneath, a corner trailing for the tip, and then a safety over the top. He was literally getting chased by three people. And you know the crazy thing is, is that 
Casey, despite how bad they played, are probably going to win this game. Well, we'll I mean, thankfully, Butker made that field goal because he missed an extra point and he missed a field goal today. Don't remind me. I have him in fantasy. Oh, yeah. I had to let him go because he was hurt too many weeks. Yeah, so. All right, let's see what the rookie can do. Malik Willis is getting the ball back. I mean, guys, obviously, you know, we're not going to sit here and drag out a recording because of a game. So at the end of this, you will obviously know, of course, who won because you'll be seeing this tomorrow morning. Yeah. But uh, that concludes it for everything. It was a great uh, action-packed weekend in the NFL. Uh, definitely an action-packed weekend for sports as a whole. Kyle and I are going to continue to put out content as much as we can. We've seen great success on every single platform last week. I mean, guys, we're up to 660 subscribers on YouTube. So shout out to everybody on YouTube for following us. TikTok, we're over 2,000. Um, I think Twitter, we're approaching 1,300. On Instagram, we're approaching 300. So, I mean, everything is growing. And without you guys, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. So big shout out to you. Uh, big shout out to my partner, like I always say, and we are just eternally grateful for the opportunity to just do what we love, and that's just talk about sports and have fun. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Um, once again, just thank you guys for supporting the podcast. Um, we'll have content rolling throughout the week, so there's going to be no shortage of content for you guys. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. Hopefully you guys uh, just support us moving forward. And until then, we'll see you guys later this week. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.